Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Julie Henricus, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am delighted to welcome Gabriel Valjean to the podcast today. Gabriel lives in Boston's South End. He's the author of the Roma series and Company Files by Winter Goose Publishing and the Shane Cleary series by Level Best Books. He's been nominated for the Agatha, the Anthony, the Silver Falchion for Best BI, and received the McCavity Award for Best Short Story. He's a member of Mystery Writers of America and a lifetime member of Sisters in Crime. I will also say for anyone who doesn't know him, he's a really wonderful member of the um, crime writing community and and uplifts so many people in the community. So I am delighted to have you on the podcast today. Welcome, Gabriel. Hi, Julie. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to this. It's actually my first podcast. Oh, I did want to interview, um, but most of them were all video. So I think this is my first or second podcast. Well, I'm a big fan of podcasts and I love doing this podcast because I love talking about writing to writers because it's a different conversation with everybody. So let's start where I usually start and talk about when did you say to yourself, I want to be a writer or I want to write a novel? It's not the traditional answer, you know, where most people say, oh, I, you know, I I wrote my first novel in five and, you know, I moved on to crayons and then, you know, scrapbook the other one, did a murder board. Um, I actually did not start publishing until my early 40s. Uh, I okay. had one brief publication when I was 19, and that was for a poem, uh, which, you know, I did it in college. And after that, uh, I did not do any writing at all. I started um as I said, my early 40s, the way I started was I just got into this idea of doing short stories every week. And most of them are horrible. But the point was, I got into this routine where, because my work schedule allowed it, you know, I had the weekends off. So I wrote, I promised that I would do a short story every week, good or bad. Um, What I ended up discovering was I enjoyed it and it was kind of like crawling before you can walk because mm-hmm. then I was like, because when you talk to a lot of writers, they'll say, oh, no, no, I, I really, really like short stories or no, no, no. I like novels. I can't write a short story. It's it's too it's too short. It's too much compression. I, I lose character development and all that. And then there's other people go, you know, oh, I would love to write a novel. I get the beginning. I die in the middle and I try to find the end somehow. Um, but by doing short stories, I found comfortable and my first novel actually came out, came about as a challenge from a coworker. Uh, I was working as a nurse and my coworker said, um, men can't write women. So I said, oh no, come on. And she goes, no, no, no. They, they, they always get it wrong. They always, you know, they just can't do it. So I wrote a short story that weekend and I came up with this um, very uh, assertive but very intelligent woman who had her own you know, insecurities, but I felt she was three-dimensional. She loved it and she says, oh, I would like to see more of this. And I'm like, but yeah, did, I wrote one, didn't I? I got it right. <laughs> so that character actually became the basis of my first novel's main character. Her name was Bianca. And she was a forensic accountant, kind of on the lam. She goes to Rome. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wrote five books in that series. Now, in terms of short stories, my very first published short story was about the 1967 riots in Newark. Uh, I'm originally from New Jersey, so I was kind of, you know, wanted to write about that. My second story, which was was a noir historical set in the 40s um i wrote that and i actually submitted that to the fish competition in ireland 
and I got placed. Mm-hmm. I placed in the, the uh, top ten, and I found out after the fact there was like four thousand submissions. Wow! Right, and um, I think Ronan Bennett was the judge, so that, that gave me a little bit of confidence. And then, so that was two thousand ten. My first novel, you know, I went, I submitted. I was trying. I was really trying to figure out how to find out about publishers, whether or not I need an agent. And I tried, got rejected, tried, rejected. And then I finally found a publisher. They were fairly new. They took a chance on me. And my first novel came out in 2012. And I've been writing since. So let's, um, I love that you gave yourself this challenge in in your uh, early 40s to write short stories. Because, you know, it's craft. Yes. Learning is part of it, but you got to do it. So that's how you develop craft. But was it always crime or, or what, you know, what, what brought you to the crime? No, genre? No, no. Um, so here's the thing. Um, I, as part of those challenges for the short stories, I did pick different genres and I really hate mm-hmm. using the word genre because I feel a story is a story. If it just mm-hmm. happens to have elements of horror or has elements of, of, of a crime mystery or even something comedic, I found that I gravitated towards crime fiction because I felt that they were very realistic, you know, very mm-hmm. real, real to life. People can understand why somebody can do something. Uh, they can mm-hmm. empathize with it. And I also found it challenging to create a character who does something horrible, but you somehow can make them sympathetic. You can understand their mm-hmm. motivation. Uh, I did, I did do horror stories um but i would say the horror was not in the sense of a monster or anything like that it was more like some element of unease you know something creepy uh mm-hmm. i also found out what i couldn't write and or i feel like i'm not confident writing and that's sci-fi i i tried that and, and the irony there is i have a science background but i think i overthink <laughs> it because i I'm like, no, no no that that wouldn't work you know because you know too much <laughs> Um, yeah, but as you were saying, part of craft, you learn dialogue, you learn character development, you learn pacing, you learn a character arc. Um, and I think you can do all those things in a short story or a long fiction format. Mm -hmm. I also find that you, you learn discipline in the sense of, you know, tell the story, don't let your ego get in the way. Don't try to show off, Mm -hmm. you know. Sir, whatever mm-hmm. you create, serve the purpose of the plot, the character. It has to be there for a reason. Uh, now, the thing with crime fiction, I think, is challenging is um, you have to make ethical decisions in the sense of do you, do you portray violence? Do you get graphic with it? Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's a sexual element of it? You, how how far do you go with that? Uh, so in my novels, I there is violence for obvious reasons, but I never get graphic with it because I feel mm-hmm. that's bludgeoning the reader and it may alienate some readers. Consequently, mm-hmm. I actually think sex is funny to write. So like, I think everybody knows how this works. So why do I have to describe it? Uh, I'd rather imply it. This is one of the reasons I love old Hollywood movies. Uh, mm-hmm. I watch them for dialogue. I watch them for how they do foreshadowing. But if you look at the older movies because of censorship and whatnot, the music would tell you, you know, whether yeah. sex was coming or something bad was going to happen, or if it was romantic, you would hear the you would hear the violins, and then the door would close, or you would see yeah. the feet in the morning. You know, I thought those were clever, subtle ways. Of course, the audience knew what happened. But um, I think, you know, sex is difficult to write. It's funny. I think comedy is hard to write because it's timing. People's humor is different. You always run the risk of offending someone. So all those things that I just described were all part of craft. And you teach yourself that. Uh, I... I'm, I kind of have a mixed opinion as to whether writing could be taught. I think it can be taught. Mm-hmm. Whether you learn it is another story. Yeah. 
Yeah. And did you take any any craft no. classes or read books or any? You just sort of said, I'm going to, uh, you obviously read a lot because I, you were you started this a little bit later. I think it's more self-education. Um, yeah. I think for me, because I started writing in my 40s, I think it was decades of reading. I think as a reader, mm-hmm. you know when something doesn't work or something, mm-hmm. you know, you, you say to yourself, that doesn't, that shouldn't be there. Why is that there? It, it you know, it doesn't make sense. However, um, in terms of craft books, the one that I did consult was um, Self-Editing for Writing Professionals by David King. Okay. Because that book helped me uh, learn how to edit myself. And I found different things in there that made sense, but I hadn't thought about it. and. I'll give you one good example. Um, and, and I did eventually get to know David. So that that, that was a great experience. Um, so he'll, he'll give you an example where, like, talking about tags. He is of the school that said just works. You mm-hmm. know, you don't have to do said in some kind of adverb. I found that interesting because, you know, he's right that if you see said on the page, but if you know who's talking about it visually, you, your eyes don't see said anymore. It, it's right. a real trick. Uh, and then if you have, <clears throat> rather than simply have, he said, if you have your character doing some kind of action, you know, it could be like drinking a cup of coffee. The reader connects the action to the voice. So you don't have to say said. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. those were subtle tricks. It's funny because I kind of knew that, but I did. I had to have somebody show that to me. And then yeah. he would give, he had exercises in the book where you would take a passage from a famous book and he would tell you to rewrite it using the principles or whatever he had taught in that chapter. And then um, the other things I thought were interesting, he had a sentiment about it. Like when he was talking about profanity if you constantly use profanity, there are some writers that think, you know, I'm being cool, I'm being hip, I'm being realistic. But the problem is if you use it too much, you desensitize your reader. Mm-hmm. So as you know, as he uses the example in Gone with the Wind, when um, Scott, uh, not Scott, when Red Butler says, I don't give a damn, it's the only damn in the book, but it counts. Mm-hmm. So when you hear it, it hits you. And it still mm-hmm. works, you know, 80 some odd years later. But when that book first came out, uh, I, I mean, I don't consider damn a really profane word. But at that time, the words like mm-hmm. hell and damn were scandalous. But the point is, if it's well placed, it has maximum impact. Yeah, no, I agree. I wrote down this book that you mentioned, and I'll put it in the show notes so that people can um, can find it. Because uh, editing is part of writing that is, again, a part of the craft that um, when you're beginning, you don't understand <laughs> the need for it as much. I mean, uh, you know, you, you just write a draft that they go, right. and then and you don't realize it's actually the editing is the work. And people, I think, need to realize, and I, I, I hope most writers know this but there are different kinds of editing so you know and when you do editing you do understand the expression kill your darlings because you go oh i really love that part but it doesn't work it doesn't contribute off it goes you can save it salvage it or whatever but then uh so you know you have your proofreader that's a form of editing because your eyes don't see missing words uh you you think it's there you don't realize you're using yep. that word for the 10,000th time uh, or you have <laughs> crutch words that they they just, they're meaningless. Um, but what I'm working towards is it takes a special skill set to do a developmental edit because when mm-hmm. you're, as a writer, you're too close to the text. And a, a developmental editor can look at the canvas and say, oh, you're missing a piece here. You need more color here. Mm-hmm. This is not really working for me. Or mm-hmm. uh, or continuity editing. She came in the room with red heels and you have her leaving with dark pumps. 
you know, there, there are mm-hmm. readers out there that will look for those little things and, mm-hmm. you know, they can, they can ding you on that on reviews. So there's different types yep. of editing. Uh, and I think it's important. And, and I think it's important for writers that when they get feedback from a developmental editor, a proofreader, or some people using sensitivity readers because of topics that they're, or subject matter they're dealing with in management, I always tell them, you know, and I, you hear this uh, advice in anger management, breathe in, count to 10, don't react. Yep. The person's trying to help yep. you. And, yep. and the thing I always tell them is, yeah, you know what you wanted to do, but is it on the page? Because if it's not on the page, mm-hmm. this, you know, talking all you want is not going to do anything because ultimately the reader has that book. You're not there over their shoulder saying, well, I wrote this because I was thinking of doing that. And that's why I did this. It has to be on the page. I think that's all such great advice and and um, so important for people to understand the different roles that can play and that if you feel stuck right. on a draft, a developmental editor is is critical to help you figure out where it's not working or where a character's falling apart or whatever, you right. know, because you can't always see that yourself. No, you can't. Um, and especially if you're not yet published uh, and you're thinking about becoming an indie author you need to have all of those eyes because some publishing houses not all publishing houses have that built into the system um but if you're an indie author you've got to do all of that yourself which is why being an indie author is so much harder <laughs> in so many ways and, and um, i wanted to just you know touch on that briefly you know yes it's a lot of indie publishers and i do think there's a lot of quality fiction coming out from indie presses because they know what's at stake they know they have to up their game now i'm going to flip that the other way i see a lot of authors in big five that are not being edited for a different reason Mm -hmm. they're big they're multi multinational bestsellers so they don't get edited and it's almost like somebody doesn't want to tell the emperor he's naked you know (laughs) you have a 700 page book there's 200 pages here you can throw out the window, but the yeah. publisher might say, well, he's so-and-so he's going to sell. Let's, let's not kill the horse. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's, yeah. there's two aspects to that. I think reading as a writer, it's hard sometimes to just read for pleasure again, yes. because you do look at, Hmm. I mean, you know, you read something and sometimes go back and say, how did she do that? <laughs> like, how did she pull that paragraph off? That's become a problem uh, for me because now this kind of brings up an interesting thing with editing too, because I have authors like, let's say with level best who will ask me to read something and they'll ask me for feedback. Now feedback and editing are two different things, but when you give feedback, you have to be careful because like editing, you want to tell them what's working and not working, but mm-hmm. not how you would write it. Right. And that's that takes discipline and that's setting your ego aside because you have to respect the other author's style, personality. Uh, I, I don't know what the right word is for that. But now when I sit there and read something, I have to take a different hat off because it's like, Am I going to read this as a writer, meaning uh, how I would have written right. it? No, yes, there are there are teaching moments where I go, wow, like you said, how did they do that? And then you dissect it and you, you can figure it out. Uh, on right. the other hand, you know, if you go in there and it's like, okay, now I've, I have met people that have told me that they will, if, if the story or the, or the novel does not work in the first page, they put it down. And that was like really harsh to hear. Um, and that also kind of made me even more ruthless as an editor because I feel like, oh my God, you know, here I am ready for a long plane flight and they just gave me this much runway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I try, I try to take the hat off and say, I'm, I'm going to read this as a person, you know, for pleasure, not as a technician or a craftsperson. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it, it, it's hard sometimes because, you know, sometimes you get these books that everybody's raving about and you sit there and go, um, am I missing something? Yeah. 
but not everything's for everybody. So, so I, I, you know, you can read it for, um, for, for craft. Or or conversely, I, I have found books that are extremely well-written and I'm I'm like, I don't know why this person is not well, more well-known. You know, why are they not getting the recognition they deserve? You know, taking and giving criticism is such a part of the writer's journey. And uh, it's hard to learn. And as you said, it is one of those, you got to breathe through it. You can't be defensive. Do you think that because you started writing a little bit later, you had built up those skills where you were willing to say, I don't know what I'm doing, so I'm going to learn? <laughs> um, you know, did, it, did that help you, help you open up to, to getting feedback? Um. I think there was a couple of factors. I think age was one of them. Um, but, you know, even as I said, I started in my early uh, early 40s. But even prior to that, I think my own life experiences, my education helped. You know, um, I, I tell people, you know, I, I, I was raised Roman Catholic. Um, so there's the legitimate fear of nuns when you were a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you knew uh, when to talk, when you were spoken to, and you knew when you were asked a question, you better damn well have an answer. And you can't fake it because they have this kind of invisible meter radar that can tell if you're lying. <laughs> um, then there is also, but, you know, as funny as that is, the principle behind it is respect. You know, yep. that you have this person who is calling you on the carpet or now I have to say that in my experience in parochial schools, compliments were seldom given. And even when they were given, you had to be guilt. You had to be, make sure you did not feel guilty of the sin of pride, which was number one. Um, <laughs> but the point was there was respect that yep. if somebody came to you with something, they were giving you an opportunity for you to give them some some perspective that maybe some missing piece of information that they did not know. So um, I think that benefit, I look at criticism as that benefit of doubt. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's an opportunity that you have. And I think readers, I'm not readers, writers should look at it from the other end of the telescope. It's better now than when your book is out there in the world. Yeah. Because once it's yeah. out there, you know, anything you say could be construed as being defensive and uh, people will jump on the bandwagon. That's that's why I think the advice is never respond to reviews works so well. Yeah. You know, screaming, screaming yeah. in another room, you know, power yeah. walk around, throw things around, but never let anybody see that. Um, right. But the point is, it's it's respect and being professional. Yeah, no, where, no matter where you are, start acting like a professional. And, and this is the same thing with social media. Somebody is always watching. Yeah. And it's the same yeah. thing with the nuns. We knew somehow they knew. <laughs> Whether they had informants, I don't know. But they somehow knew everything. So don't even try to get away with right. something. <clears throat> now, you add another layer of complication to your writing in that you write um, in different periods, time periods. Um, yes. and uh, And that... You know, in talking to people who write historical, uh, you know, you have people who just read historical, people who write mysteries, read people who write, but people who write, read historical um, anything really look for details and will and and want you to be accurate. Do you love that level of detail? I mean, you know, I, I it's daunting to me that the amount of work that everybody I think I think you, you know the, the, the question is really, you know, how do you do you do you love research? But I kind of flip that another way because um yes, you know, there there is research and you have to have a certain um love for that, uh, and you have to have a certain respect for the period whatever that time period that is. And I'm fascinated, by the way, of what people consider historical because, you know, the Mm -hmm. Agathas uh, and the Anthonys, you know, the the Anthonys, as far as I know, has never had historical. And then the Agathas were were defining it as um, prior, I think, 1960, I think. So 
my point is, you know, the Shane Cleary series is and set in the seventies. There are people mm-hmm. that will consider that historical, which makes me feel like mm-hmm. a dinosaur. But then there is, you know, uh, you have Laurie Chandler writing the Art Deco 1930s and all that. Mm-hmm. When it comes to doing the research, the way I put it is we're now in an age where we can do research better, yeah. uh, if that's the right word. You know, I think growing up, you know, when I went to the library, I was dealing with a card catalog. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, now I have Google now. The flip side to that is you have to make sure you have to trust the source. You know, it, are you getting something? Yeah. But I think when people ask that question, what they're saying is, do you like to do research because you want authenticity? And my answer to that is I do research because it helps my character and it drives the plot. So if I'm writing about a woman in 1950, which I did in Devil's Music, Yes, I want to make sure I have the clothes right so somebody doesn't call call me out on it. But I'm looking at it from the point of view is what is she wearing that makes her distinctive compared to the other women around her? You know, mm-hmm. what what is it? that sense of her personal style living in an age where you have to be very careful about what you put out there because there's a lot more at stake, your reputation, perception. Um, you know, I guess there is an inherent sexism with that, but the point is, you know, it's, it's like when you look at Victorian mysteries, you know, that what the person's wearing is indicative of their social class Mm -hmm. education or lack thereof. So Mm -hmm. I think all those elements are helping, uh, create a better canvas and a better right set of writing for the, for the reader to enjoy. Mm-hmm. And yes, you can go down rabbit holes, but um, sometimes that's fun. So what's your process like when you're writing a book? I mean, if you've written series, uh, you know, and I know that starting a new one or writing a standalone is different. But in general, what kind of process do you well, have for writing? Um, I think, you know, there's no one process for every writer. I think you have to find out right. what works for you. For myself, I tend to think in scenes. And often my scenes become my chapters. And my approach to that might be a little bit different than other people when I say this. I find that when you write a scene, I try to write it very vivid, very precise. And I say that because I found or I think most, this goes back to the writer that told me that they will put down a book after the first page, is that uh, people... I'm generalizing when I say this, but people don't have attention span. So Mm -hmm. if you give them a precise, concise image that's vivid, it moves them along. If you give them too much detail, especially in a mystery, they're not going to know what's important anymore. They might get lost there. They might be thinking, hold on a second. He's telling me all this stuff. There must be a clue in here somewhere. What, What am I missing? And, you know, that can work against you. Um, So my process is to try to get my scene to work as best as it can for that chapter and have it connect to the next chapter. It could be sequential or it could be something that I created in that scene that comes up later. So the way I kind of describe it is it's like hook and latch. You hook them with the scene, you latch it to the next one or connect it to a third or fourth scene. And then I find that if you you know your story or you moving into your story, the writing will come. You, you'll, you'll get into the zone, you'll get momentum, and you just keep going. So do you plot those scenes or have an idea of, of certain scenes uh, um, before you start? Or do you do you come up with an idea and just start going or I it it depends I mean it's not always the same every time I sometimes I start off with a visual um other times it it will be a line of dialogue and Mm -hmm. it from there it will grab it you know it will morph into things and this you know I some people say you know write what you know I also tell them you know write what you know but write to go 
right to find out how you feel about what you think you know, because you often find mm-hmm. out you don't know what you think you know. I know that sounds mm-hmm. convoluted, but um, so for um, Devil's Music, for example, which is an historical set in the 50s, I opened up with a pivotal event. It was the night the Rosenbergs were executed. And you have two mm. people in a room waiting for the news, and they both have two different reactions to it. You have a, uh, a mother and a wife that needs to figure out how she's going to explain to her children the next morning what had happened. Mm-hmm. And the husband, the, the, the father who is um, works for the CIA, now I did find out that this was true. I, this part I was not making up. Even though they 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 were sentenced to death, and as we know, they were executed, they were given an opportunity <clears throat> to offer information that would have saved them from being executed. And everybody had thought that they would, I don't want to say recant, but that they would take the out. Yeah. And they, everybody was stunned that they basically said, no, nope. they went through with it. Um, so that, that was a, that was sort of like a historical event that I used as the starting point and other ones, I, I guess I start the traditional way. There's a body on the floor and you get the who, what, when, where, why, how. And you write both short stories and novels. Do you, do you prefer one over the other or do you, you know, because it is, it is two different skill yes. sets and not everybody can do both. So do you, um, do you prefer one over the well, other? I, I look at short story calls as a prompt, as a challenge. You know, if, some, if, if mm-hmm. the theme is, you know, whatever, you know, I look at that as a challenge. I, I don't know what I'm going to write. I just, that's part of what I enjoy about short stories. Uh, I have used short stories as a litmus to see whether or not it had enough legs to become a novel. I've done that. Mm-hmm. Um, the one form mm-hmm. I really like, and I don't know if it's popular or it's not popular, but I like the novella form because yeah. it's, I think it's a beautiful compromise between short story and the novel. You don't, you know, it's, it's not quite a sprint. It's not quite a marathon. It's like a 10 K. You can do it. It won't kill you. Um, The interesting thing with novellas is that if you look at Hollywood films, most most films. I mean, yes, some of them came from novels, but most of them came from novellas. Shawshank Redemption is a good example, although the novella is not called that. But, it's you know, it's 100 pages, which Mm -hmm. if you think about it from a script point, and if there's any writers out there that want to have their stuff made into a movie. It's a page a minute. A page mm-hmm. a minute is uh, adds up to the total time for the screenplay and the film. So I, I like the novella. Yeah, I, I know several writers who do, and and sometimes they'll do compilations of novellas. But it isn't. Although with indie publishing, more and more people are writing novellas because they can get them published. But traditional publishers, um, you know, unless they get two or three novellas and compile them, it, it's not a genre that gets out there. For writers out there that are wanting to test their feet on the novella, like for example, the Nero Wolf Black Orchid contest which is done by, um, I'm blanking if it's Ellery Queen or Alfred Hitchcock, but the point is it presumes you are familiar with the Nero Wolf canon, but the point is it, it's a contest where you are invited to write, you know, I think it's like 30,000 words, something, you know, under 100. Mm-hmm. Um, the Grifter Song series with Frank Zafiro is another one that is, they're all novellas. He gives you a character. I was approached, you know, you were given a character Bible of these characteristics of these two protagonists and go right on it. Yeah. Uh, I did a series of novellas for my Roma series that introduces each of the five men before they meet the main female character. So you get the team before her. So you see what their life was like before her. It's also. Do- each story was written in a different time period uh, mm-hmm. for those characters and in a different part of Italy. So you get a cultural historical element. 
And uh, they were wow. a blast to write. I had a lot of fun with that. And, you yeah. know, I think if, if you've got good muscles, I think a novella you can knock out in a fairly short time. At least I like to think so. Yeah. Now, what surprised you about the publishing journey? We've talked about writing, but, you know, what do you wish you'd known earlier on? Or, oh, you God. know, what, what do you, yeah. <laughs> so the, this, this is like a twofold answer. I'm an introvert, so the, and this goes back to my Roman Catholicism. I can't talk about myself. I had a hard yeah. time with that because, you know, I, I was imagining the ruler behind me. And I think that's part of the reason why I'm more supportive of other people than, you know, standing on a soapbox and screaming my own name. Um, I think the thing that I had a hard time learning was marketing. What is that? Mm -hmm. um, and how do you do it effectively? How do you know you're doing it effectively? Social media, which channel do you use? Which one works? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just so much out there. It's overwhelming. I tend to use Twitter and I'll explain why. I often do visuals with Twitter because I find people remember the remember the visual. They can save it to their phone. And when you have a Twitter feed, um, obviously you can promote it using tags and whatnot and call out people. When you call out people effectively, you can boost that tweet. You know, it kind of proliferates, but you also can reuse it. With mm -hmm. Instagram, it's hard to call people out. You can't put links in. Reuse, as far as I know it, is difficult or impossible. I don't know anything about TikTok. Um, Facebook, I use because I know people. I mean, I mean that, mm -hmm. that was originally the reason why Facebook was created, but because I got to know people through conferences, friends, you know, family friends, 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 and writer friends. So I feel like that's part of my routine. You know, I come in, have my morning coffee. I go see what people are up to. I post something. Um, I don't, I don't see Facebook as something to promote my books. I mean, I can sort of do an FYI, but I, I had to teach myself all those things, you know, mm -hmm. I look at I look at other people's Twitter feeds and, you know, you got some people that just keep promoting their book. There's nothing else or they don't create any content. They're just retweeting everybody. I mean, I, you know, I can't speak to what's going through their head, but um, I try to look at it as, again, this comes back to being professional. What you put out there lives forever. So mm -hmm. you try to make the best impression, the best first impression. Right. Um, but I had to teach myself the marketing and the social media. And I still don't, I still don't know what works. I, I'm convinced none well, of us do. No, I am convinced as well, because it changes. Uh, you touched on something that I want to sure. talk about. You, um, that you're an introvert and you don't like talking about no. yourself, so, but you, you are very good about talking about other <laughs> people. So, um, you know, when award season comes up, for example, you are the first person to say, hey, tell me if you have a story or book where it belongs, because I'm going to start a blog post and, you know, or a page, and I want to make sure you're on there. Um, not now, and not promoting yourself. And in doing it, people are going to pay attention, but it, the, you have the generosity. Even if you're not on a list, you will put a, a meme together of all the book covers or, you know, congratulations. Or if somebody's doing an event, you'll boost the event with a, a, a you know, a graphic that you created. Um, and that generosity, I, I know people, it, it can pay off dividends, but I never have gotten a sense from you that you do it for payback. You do it because that's the, that's the energy you want to put out into the world is, Hey, you know, I, I want to project positivity. I mean, I have my own mm -hmm. dark moments, but, um, you know, when you were talking about the list for the blog post, um, you know, letting people know what's Agatha eligible or Anthony eligible, part of that came out of self-interest because I'm sitting there going, uh, I have to write five names. I don't know what's out there or I know what's out there, but yeah. I don't know what year it came out. So it, it helped me organize uh, but also reminded me just how much is out there. And then, yeah. you know, obviously, so it, it came out 
it came out as a way of helping myself and it kind of morphed into a service. Um, mm -hmm. So I feel that's being helpful. I, I like being helpful Yes. Uh, in terms of creating graphics. You know, it, it's interesting because I know and I see this with publishers, you know, sometimes they promote certain writers in their stable and not other writers. And, you know, I always looked at it as, you know, if you got nominated or you made the shortlist or a finalist, whatever the word is, you know, I rather put your book up there because I know you worked hundreds of hours creating that damn thing. And I don't want you to feel like you're a mushroom in a dark closet, unknown and yeah. growing and nobody knows you're alive. So, yeah. you know, for, yeah. for a writer to see that with other peers, I think, you know, it, yeah. it boosts their signal, but also it, it Absolutely. just makes you feel good. You know, it's like, Hey, somebody knows I'm alive. Yeah, no, it's a kindness. And, and, um, you know, I think that in a, in a field that sometimes can feel like there's such scarcity, yeah. there's in fact room for everybody in one way or another. And, um, and you're, you just shine a light on, on the positivity, on the opportunity. And I, and I think that that's great. Well, again, I think if you're positive, you know, there's nothing bad anybody can say about you, you know, you know, you're making the world a better place. You're, you're not being a troll. You're not being negative. You're not being, you know, you're not putting somebody else down. Uh, you're putting your energy in a good place. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I don't see any downside to any of that. No, nor do I, but I, 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 you know, I'm grateful for the the positivity because it's not always there. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> writing me is a, a solitary thing, so you feel like a one point universe sometimes. Um, so I think you know, knowing that other people know you're out there, and and you know, one of the things that I found very helpful being the extrovert is it made it a lot easier to meet people at conferences because people come up yeah. to you and say, "Hey, you know." Thank you. And I'm sitting there going, oh, oh, yeah, that, you know, you did this on Twitter. Yeah. So it puts the introduction on them as opposed to me feeling like a stalker walking up to them. Yeah. Oh, it's great. Well, and you your first book was published 10 years ago, yes. which is a long time, but not that long. I mean, and it's such an interesting um interesting journey and you know you're up for awards so more and more and and you know um what what are you you know what would you like to start to do now do you do you have new challenges in front of you are you looking uh, at new series or new you know how do you keep it fresh for you so right now i'm i'm finishing up or i'm about to submit the fourth shane cleary series uh so that's the fourth one in the series when I walk away from that while it's in development, I've been wanting to, to, there's two projects that I've been wanting to do. One of them I've actually written and I want to revise, and that is two books in a series in Shanghai in the 1930s. Um, for mm. people who don't know, um, that is a fascinating time period. It's before World War II. Shanghai was a city that was occupied by four military powers. Um, I take the view and maybe this might be a little bit controversial, but I feel World War II started in the East, not in Europe, because mm -hmm. Japanese sank the Russian fleet in, I think, 1905. That was really the start of the beginning. Um, but it's a fascinating time period. Um, you had, um, uh, people there that were ostracized by British royalty that were making obscene amounts of money for the British government, but they were not welcome. Uh, a lot of that had to do with anti-Semitism. So I have two books that I want to edit there. Another project that I'd like to start, have not written anything, although I've taken copious notes, is I would like to do an alt history series. Um, mm. And I want to... Um, the premise is the United States is going into World War II. That part has not changed, but the United States is not the United States that we know it. It's more like zones, and it has to do with the mm -hmm. history and the fact that um, not everybody was able to agree on the Constitution 
Um, but the point is, you know, you have these zones that have to cooperate each, with each other because of an imminent mm-hmm. threat. Also, they have to cooperate, you know, in terms of trade because of resources. So, you know, FDR is basically the president, but only for the East Coast. He's got to talk to a president that represents the West Coast. And then in between, you have um, basically a theocracy, which um, given today's contemporary politics, it's interesting, (laughs) to say the least. Yeah. So that, you know, you talked about not writing sci-fi before, but that sounds like that could be a whole bunch of stuff coming together. I, I know all history falls under sci-fi, but I tend to look at it as historical fiction, but being selective about the elements you choose and mm-hmm. then taking certain elements that you kind of like either flip it a certain way or have it turn out a different way. Um, so you're playing loosely with facts. You know, most of mm-hmm. most of my books, um, like the company files and even uh Books two and three of the Shane Cleary series, uh, Hush Hush and Symphony, those were all those books were basically inspired by real events. So mm-hmm. I'm not 100 percent as creative as you think. I just kind of <laughs> do things selectively with it uh, or give you the darker side of it. Yeah, well, that's creative. I mean, you know, other people could could be told the same stories you were told and not come up with things. So that's that's the creativity. That's the writer is is letting it all go in your brain. And but it's fun. It has to be fun. Yeah. Um. So we've we've hit on a lot. Um. But you know, as we're wrapping up, let's talk about community and the and the crime writing community. How, how has what has community meant to you in your writing career? Well, uh, I, I I attend different conferences. I attend Crime Bacon New England, which is um, local New, Eng- New England writers, as the, as the name sort of implies. I also go to the main uh, Crime Wave, which is even mm-hmm. more granular in the sense that they're uh, main writers. And then I go I go to Sisters in Crime, uh, wherever that is, and I go to Malice, which is in Bethesda, Maryland. And then I go to BoucherCon if I can. So those are different population sizes. So um, New England and Maine, I kind of consider very homey people I know. Malice is mm-hmm. you know, traditionally known for the cozy community, although I wish people would realize cozy is not always cozy. Um, right. Then, you know, BoucherCon to me is like Disney World with all the bright lights and noises and, you know, mobs and mobs of people. Um, but you, you, you do see, sometimes you see the same people and all those, uh, but community also to me is virtual. You know, I, mm-hmm. you know, it, it takes a different mindset, but the fact that I can access people or see people online, Facebook, Twitter, you know, that keeps the flame alive, you know, when mm-hmm. these conferences aren't happening. Um, but I also like, community just in the sense that I get to meet people participate on panels uh especially after COVID it really nice to put a a face to the name especially when you're meeting somebody the Mm -hmm. first time and I I tell writers it's really important to go to conferences because when once you make that personal connection people remember you you get it one thing Mm -hmm. leads to another you go to a panel you meet other people I mean uh, my very first panel was with Lori Raider Day, Katrina McPherson, Martin Edwards, uh, Christopher Sikorsky. I mean, I felt like the nobody sitting on there. And then a year later, I'm moderating the panel for the Anthony nominees for Best Paperback. Yeah. So talk yeah. about getting out of your comfort zone. Um, <laughs> no. But the conferences are also great, too, if if you're looking to pitch something, if you're looking to get feedback, um, you know, some, it, getting to know people also makes it very, it makes it easier to ask for blurbs, which mm-hmm. I think is very awkward for a lot of writers. Um, mm-hmm. But you also, at these conferences, you, um, you're getting to see things that are um, new and exciting. Um, 
you know, Sherry Harris, for example, you know, uh, and Sisters at Crime, they're doing a lot for diversity. Uh, you have a scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, Writers of Color are, are is another group. They're, they're making their presence known at the conferences. So now you have uh, calls for, um, you know, writers of diversity, whether it's um, African-American, whatever. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's working because we are seeing authors getting published that um, we wouldn't have seen eight, 10 years ago. You know, we have mm-hmm. Cozy's, you know, uh, Jennifer Chow. Um, she's probably going to hurt me if I mispronounce her last name, but Mia Manasala. Um, yeah. I hope I got that last name right. But you did get it, the right? point is uh, the faces of the conferences are changing. And yeah. I think, you know, as a writer, you need to know who your audience is. It's not just other writers. And you get to meet, mm-hmm. you know, it's nice when you meet a, uh, a reader who likes what you do because it, it's a validation. And, you know, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. It's one thing to read a review, yeah. but when you actually meet somebody who's enthusiastic, uh, it's a little scary, but it's exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. It is exciting. Well, as we're, um, Recording this, we're both uh, hoping that, you know, to, are you going to Butcher yes, this I am. year? Yes. yes, I am. So that's, um, we'll see you there. But um, it, in the meantime, it was wonderful to see you on Zoom. And I love seeing you on social media all the time. Oh, thank and, you. Um, thank you for a great conversation. Well, thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.